Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael, and I'm a sexaholic. It's wonderful to be here. It's an honor. And what a wonderful opportunity it is to tell a story of recovery. I... uh, frequently find myself wanting to share what has been given to me, but by the nature of this addiction, I don't do that. And uh, so there are many, many people at my job, many, many people in my family, many friends, many, many, many neighbors who don't know about this addiction, and that's fine. I wish I could tell more people. But this is a wonderful opportunity. I, I have to tell you that I am very, very grateful for the many, many gifts that God has given me through sobriety. And um, I think that the 12-step program of recovery works when I work it. And it doesn't if I don't. I think that might be the key to my entire life, is that the 12-step program of recovery works really, really well when I have worked it and it has not worked when I have not. And um, I just want to share a little bit about uh, my family history is simply that I come from a a whole family tree of addicts. And uh, 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 just a couple highlights. Uh, My my mother tells this story about walking to school with her uh, girlfriends and having to literally cross the street to avoid... The, the, the drunken bum who was laying in the gutter. And that drunken bum was my grandfather. I'm sorry, her grandfather, my great-grandfather, at one time in his life was a street drunk. His daughter, my grandmother, allegedly laid in bed for months at a time with tears just going down her cheeks. She was incapable of taking care of her family. Her daughter, my mother, and my father were both active alcoholics the whole time I was growing up. So by the time I saw pornography at age eight, it was magical. It was absolutely perfect for me. And I found that the pages, I have a, 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 an imagination that won't shut off. It's always been that way, and that's fine. It's a blessing and a curse. It, it helps me in my work. Uh, but also I can't get sleep at night sometimes. Uh, but uh, those images on those pages came to life. And I lived in this fantasy world. So between ages 8 and 16, by the time I actually started acting out with myself and with girls I was dating, that time was really just filled with lust. I mean, I just was so drunk on lust as a, as a child Soon after, I was drinking and smoking pot, and that took off to no end. And my acting out with with, uh, girls I was dating took off as well. And um, 
I ended up joining AA at age 23 because it had gotten so bad so quickly. So I can tell you that I was a, a, a professional heavy-duty drunk by the time I was 23, and I was uh, incapable of work. I was uh, 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 just flipping through channels on television looking for lust triggers. I was uh, uh, unshaven, unshowered, unemployable, uh, sitting in a, 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 an efficiency that I wasn't even paying for. A friend of mine let me work, uh, live there between jobs. And uh, it was that night that I called AA and joined. Many people in AA end up living wonderful lives. I was eight years sober in AA and ready to commit suicide. I was living here in San Diego at the time. I, I've lived all over the country, but, uh, and now I'm from Philly, as, uh, as was said before by Steve. But I, I, I did at that time live in San Diego between 86 and 94. And I was extremely unhappy. And it all had to do with this addiction. When I removed the alcohol and the, and the pot from my life, it became quite evident that this was ruining me. I thought about sex all day. I won't ask for a show of hands on that one. <laughs> but I would lay down my head on my pillow at every night, and I would say, I can't believe I did that. A whole nother day. I didn't want to do this. I wanted this day to be different. And it was the exact same. And, it, and, and, and I couldn't help but ask myself nightly, what's wrong with me? Something is desperately wrong with me. And the next morning I would wake up with this resolve, today I will not do that. And within minutes, I was flipping channels, in the shower, stimulating myself, in the walk-in closet, I had porn stashed. Um, I lived in El Cajon at the time and uh, worked down in Mission Beach, and so right on Route 8, right out here, so when I came in for the, for the conference, it was a lot of memories. Right out here on Route 8, I would uh, be driving into work with porn on the, on the seat beside me. Flirting with every woman around, I knew exactly who was in the Porsche, who was in the Buick, who was in the Pinto. I just, I just knew. And then by the time I got to work, I was ready to start flirting with all those women and pursuing. And what happened then in those few years was uh, I crossed a million boundaries. That I'll do this, but I'll never do that. I'll. I'll do that once, but I'll never do it again. Okay, I'll do that now, but I won't ever do that. And it just on and on and on. And so I can tell you that it, it became overwhelming. I hated myself, hated everyone around me, but I would do anything I could to get my stash. And that stash for me was approval. And there was one very, very good way to get approval from a woman was to have relations. And so I, 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 I did that all the time, always pressuring my wife for sex. Um, in AA sobriety, I did uh, meet someone, I got married, we had a child, and, uh, and in 1991, uh, during this time period, uh, 
life had gotten so bad that something had to change. And uh, it, was, it was painful. I remember sitting on the beach down there in, I think, it was, I think it was Coronado. I was trying to remember which beach, but I think it was Coronado Beach. And I remember how much I wanted to die. I wanted a plane to break apart and just fall down and hit me. Frequently, out here on Route 8, I kept thinking, oh, if only another car would wreck into me. That's how much pain I lived in. And the arguments at home got so loud and so vicious and so blaming and finger-pointing, and it was, uh, it was a very, very unhappy home. Until the most beautiful day when... I put two and two together. In, in addiction, they call that the moment of clarity. When I said, oh, maybe, just maybe, all this pain I'm going through might be associated with this, these activities that I'm doing. And it was so difficult, but such a revelation. I... It, it, was, it was like uh, uh, two plus two equals four. It was, uh, it was uh, the biggest aha moment of my life that, that perhaps, perhaps these actions might be causing the pain that I was going through. And that's the day I made the call. The call. Now, I, I have to tell you now, I have 14 years of sobriety. Okay, uh, it's no, it's it's a gift. It's a gift. So it's uh, I don't like to think of it as my accomplishment. It's it's a gift. But I, I also want to be clear on that is because we're talking about 1991 and, and simple math, you might say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Well, I did have a, 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 I did lose my sobriety. I acted out, but I'll explain that in a second. Uh, 1991, I made the call to, Phil, uh, to, uh, to San Diego Intergroup, and uh, that was July 16th, 1991. I went to the Tuesday night El Cajon meeting. That was my very first meeting ever. And... Uh, was given an orientation, a big shout-out for orientations. I don't know if they're still required in San Diego, but they were back then. You couldn't go to a regular meeting. They are. That's wonderful. I'm a huge, huge fan of orientation meetings, and it's simply because it gave me a chance to ask questions. And it gave her, it was a, it was a woman, she, it gave her a chance to ask me questions to make sure that I belonged, because that's important. Over the past 24 years or so, I have given dozens, if not hundreds, of orientations myself, and there are many times when I found out that the person was a reporter or a, a, a grad student or an interested spouse or a police officer or just somebody trying to pick up on others. And, and, and so it, it afforded me the opportunity to say, you know what, I don't think this is for you, but you're certainly welcome to come back at another time when you do want to be here for your own recovery. And those questions were asked of me that night. Are you a reporter? Are you a cop? Are you here for your own recovery? And I love orientations. And my 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 journey through the 12 steps began that night. And I'm so grateful for the many lessons that God has given me. The first seven years of my sobriety were wonderful. I worked 
frequently. I worked the steps. I, I had sponsees. I, I was sponsored by someone. I went to many, many meetings. I was involved with Intergroup here in San Diego at that time. And I, I am very grateful for the many lessons. But the one thing, and this is, this is I, I want to explain why I lost my sobriety because I lost it at nine and a half years. And if I can help anybody here not slip, not lose your sobriety, that would be wonderful. That really would. So that's, I think, maybe the biggest thing I want to share with you is why I lost my sobriety then. The first seven years, I was growing. But I started finding out the one thing that acting out removed from me is it removed my spine. I would have said anything for my trigger, for my stash. I would have done anything. A friend of mine calls it his Dougie Yum Yum. He said, I'll do anything for my Dougie Yum Yum. And I, and I, and I felt the same way. I felt that I would just say anything. I, would, I, I, I was like a chameleon. I would tap dance. I would do anything just to get my approval. I needed your approval. Uh, the, the women. I needed women's approval. And um, at seven years, I actually stopped forcing that on her. I stopped asking for her approval. I started standing up for myself and becoming the man who I believe God wanted me to be. It was a wonderful time but very difficult at home because we were traversing you know, this new realm I remember at one point she even said, you're not the same man I married. And she meant it derogatorily, but I, I, I agreed with her because I wasn't the same man she married. I felt very, very different. But I also didn't know what I was becoming. And uh, it became quite evident that we didn't belong together. I don't want to get into the details because I don't think this would be appropriate. I don't think it would be prudent. I just wanted to make sure that I explained that somewhere in that time period, I started standing up for myself, and it, in a way it feels, looking back on it, that that may have been the beginning of the end. I wasn't trying to force uh, us to split up. I was just trying to force myself to grow up and to take care of my family and to be the person God wanted me to be. We did end up divorcing, but during that time period, it was a lot of finger pointing and a lot of anger. And I was, um, I didn't handle it very well. And I learned one of the biggest lessons of my life that resentment lays a very fertile ground for lust. When I am strong, when I am prayerful, I can speak to a very attractive woman. I, at work, you wouldn't believe how many attractive women there are around. Just two weeks ago, there was over a hundred of them trying to get jobs in my company, and they had to go through a panel of us, and we were interviewing them. And, uh, and I thought, isn't this funny? Isn't this amazing? that I'm about to speak to some folks down in San Diego, I sure hope I can remember to tell them this. So this is a wonderful opportunity for me to say, your strength goes with me wherever I go. 
God's strength goes with me wherever I go. But at that time when I was learning to become strong, it also became a time for me to uh, learn about resentment. And when the divorce got to its full white-hot heat, I was filled with hatred. And I'm, I, I have to be honest here, that hatred ki- almost killed me. In the big book, they say resentment is our number one offender. Our number one offender. Resentment kills more addicts than anything. Well, I, I could have been a statistic. And it's all because of that. And I remember the feeling of, oh, I hate this, I hate her, oh, this is so wrong, this is so wrong, and oh my goodness, look, somebody invented the internet. (laughs) And it was magical. I could see anything anywhere in the world in my own privacy, and I I don't need it. Show of hands on that one either. But I can, I can tell you that it was at that time when I said, wow, this is, this is crack cocaine. And one thing led to another, and I did act out twice. So my sobriety date is August 29th, 2001. I'm very, very grateful for that. But <clears throat> if, excuse me, <clears throat> if, There was no difference between that sobriety and this sobriety, then it was all for naught. So thinking about coming here and speaking, I, 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 I prayerfully considered what might be different between now and back then, because that is key. If I have not grown, if I have not learned, I could die again from this, because I'm still very much a sexaholic. I'm not impervious to lust. I, it's, it's any time I want, I could lust. They say that while we're in here getting sober, our addiction's out in the parking lot doing push-ups. So, so I, I have this 14-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger out in the parking lot ready to take me down if I end up not praying. So there are three things, three elements of my uh, sobriety now that are night and day. The first is, ironically, I can't even talk about much, uh, and it just wouldn't be appropriate, wouldn't be prudent, is that I, I learned through my church the, 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 all about the, the marital act. And so I'm, I'm not going to get into that right now. This just wouldn't be the time. But I can say that that was another big, huge aha moment of my life, is to, figure, to, to find out what God's plan was for marriage. But I learned that the 12-step program was not what I thought. And this is key. The 12-step program of recovery, I thought, had everything to do with me getting to know me better. I thought it was all about Michael learning the tools of the trade so that when I got hit with a moment, an opportunity to lust, I would know what to say and what to do. I thought if I could just understand myself better, my inner workings, then I would be able to handle this. But that almost sounds more like therapy, doesn't it? That I wanted to learn my inner workings. 
That's not really what the 12-step program is. What I learned was, and this is, this is a beautiful thing that, that I was taught in the second half of my recovery, is that I am powerless. I have no power over lust. If it's between me and lust, lust will kill me every time. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. And the 12 steps simply get me to obtain and to nurture a relationship with him. So that when, not if, but when I have an opportunity to lust, he will give me the strength. He is my fortress. He is my strength. He is my shield. That's key. I have no power. He has all. I want some. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in between me and him. Things that block me from the sunlight of the Spirit. Resentments, amends, need for approval, judgmental spirit. So the steps are my way, my opportunity, to clear away those things that are blocking me from him. And when I begin to unblock the path, I get to see him. I feel his presence. I hope I make sense because this is, this is what my life is about now, is when I work the steps, it's all about him and getting to have that power. And whenever I work the steps with the sponsee, it's the same thing. I'm introducing the two of them. I'm getting them to have a relationship. And that's important. It's life-saving. I didn't understand that before, but I do now. And the way, <clears throat> excuse me, the way that I, I work this mostly, and there's many, many ways, a lot of phone calls, a lot of uh, 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 step work, a lot of calls to my sponsor, a lot of uh, meetings, obviously, but the most important thing I do, far more important than anything I do in my life, is my quiet time in the morning. It is then, in the quiet, in the peace, that I feel him most. It is in that quiet, in that peace, that he gently directs me what I need to work on. He does not talk to me in earthquakes and tornadoes and howling winds and lightning bolts. He talks to me in little whispers and nudges. So I'll be sitting there in prayer and he might say, hey, uh, you were a little argumentative yesterday at work. You may owe an apology. And I'll say, ah, thank you. Okay. Or you didn't have to be sarcastic at that church meeting the other day. And I say, ah, yeah. Okay, good one. Thank you. It's in the quiet. It's in the peace. My prayer life before was I'll say, I'll, I'll read a page of the big book and a page of the white book and a page of the Bible and I'll write 25 things and I'll call in this. And no, now 
This may sound corny, but this is what I keep in mind when I, in my prayer life in the morning. It's very quiet, receptive. Think about, this is a weird analogy, but think about the Andy Griffith show, okay? There's Andy and Opie, father and son, and they are just best pals, very friendly with each other, just hanging out. And I have a picture on my phone of the two of them just delighting in each other's presence, just hanging out. Just You know how they would walk down to the creek and they would stand there and they'd skip stones. My, my, my spiritual advisor, a priest friend of mine, he says, it's sort of like just wasting time with your friend. Just wasting time. He, he wants me to waste time with him and I want to waste time with him. That's what my prayer life is. I feel a million times stronger today than I did 14 years ago. And it's because of that. It's so simple, and I'm not saying that's all I do. I'm saying that's the most important thing I do. It is in the quiet. It is in the the peace. And sometimes in that gentle, peaceful quiet, I'm sitting there smiling. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that to just be clear that this is so wonderful. My relationship with him has gotten stronger and stronger over the years. And I feel his presence now while I speak to others. I, uh, and I'm not a religious freak or anything. I just, I just feel his presence. And it's all through the 12-step program. I feel more useful now than I've ever felt before. I feel more productive than I've ever felt before. In fact, I can tell you this, 2015 was a very difficult year for me. We had a lot of issues happen in our family. Uh, I don't need to go into details, but it's, it was heated arguments with our uh, extended families. Health-wise, work-wise, there have been many challenges. This still was more joy than I've ever felt in my life. So the thing I learned in 2015 is that there's a difference between joy and happiness. Okay? I feel happy, joyous, and free. But there are times when I feel kind of down. It does not mean that I'm clicking my heels and laughing all the time. It just means things are much, much better than I ever, ever thought possible. My sponsor told me once a long time ago, he said, if you ever want to know how you're doing, ask your family. And so somebody recently at work was, there's my wife, uh, Kathleen, wonderful, wonderful, no offense, she's the nicest person on the planet Earth. I love her to pieces. So she's standing there and somebody's talking to her and, and, and we were all laughing about something. And she said, what's your life like at home? And I, I was listening so carefully. I wanted to hear what she said. And she said, it is. She said, it's very peaceful. There's a strength in our home. There's a peace. There's a serenity. There's a joy. It doesn't come from me. It comes from him. And the only way I know how to get to him, the best way I know how to get to him is to work the 12 steps. I'm such a huge fan of the 12-step program of recovery. 
I would be dead. I know it, I'd be dead. So whenever I have the opportunity to share that, that's, that's a wonderful topper. It's icing on the cake. So I, I, do, I do thank you very much for allowing me this chance. And, uh, and thank you all for your time. God bless. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.